0: hello everyone and welcome to millennial learns my name is abby thank you all so much for tuning into this week's episode so that we can learn together i appreciate you tuning in so usually on our monday episode which this one is i basically choose a random topic learn about it and kind of report back to you guys and i've learned a ton over the course of this whole podcast um Today was supposed to be like going over the book of Revelation to finish our Bible in a year. But it is such an involved book. And there are like six month sermon series on that and stuff that I just figured I'm going to give myself a little bit of time to actually go through Revelation and try to figure out what it says and like read all the Bible commentary about it. So that's on pause for just a little bit until I feel kind of comfortable enough to actually recap it in a useful way because i could just go through all the tw- you know 21 chapters or whatever it is and just say exactly what this revelation says but not get into the commentary so much or not really understand what it means so i don't really want to do that until i fully kind of understand so we're talking about something different today as you can tell from the um title of the podcast but basically i have always been curious about submarines and not understanding how they really work, how can they control their depth you know, in the water, how do they get air in that's clean and recycled, how do they get fresh water in, um, and all of those sorts of questions. So I've never fully understood anything really about submarines. I also wanted to know a little bit about like military submarines and how crew members live on them, how cramped it is, how long they're down there for, anything that's gone wrong with submarines because they just seem very terrifying to me because it seems like just a multitude of things could go wrong. So I just wanted to get really the rundown on submarines in general. And so I hope you find this to be a very fascinating episode because I learned a ton. So enjoy the episode and thanks for tuning in. (laughs) So first things first, we got to talk a little bit about like the mechanics of how these actually work. So I looked up this article from OregonState.edu. It's called precollege.oregonstate.edu. I'll link it below, but it's all about how submarines are able to like control their depth, why they work and all that. And it was very, very informative. So essentially a submarine floats... Or any boat really floats whenever the mass of the water that the boat or submarine is displacing is equal to the mass of the boat so it's all very mass dependent and when those equal the upward force on the boat that the displacement displacement causes is called buoyancy so you need a certain amount of buoyancy you need the buoyancy to be equal to the gravity factor for Um, you know, to have an equal and opposite reaction so that the boat or submarine will not sink. So if those two forces are equal, the boat will stay where it is in the water or in the ocean. Um, So regular boats, since they're very, you know, I mean, I guess a submarine is rigid also, but a regular boat cannot control or change its buoyancy. It's always the same buoyancy. And so you know, it's always just a constant level, you know, sitting in the water, but a submarine can actually change its buoyancy. And that is how submarines can change their depth in the water is by changing their buoyancy. So submarines can come up and surface for a little bit, then they can decide to go back down and that is because they're changing their buoyancy. So how do they do that? Basically, I will post a diagram of this. So if you, um, need a visual. You can go over to my Instagram or just google the the diagram of a submarine, but essentially, so at the top there's like a little scope, you know, it's called the periscope. That's what the sailors or the crew can see out of if they're surface and going to go above the water. Then there is the interior where the crew lives and works. That's in the very middle of you know, let's call it a tube that's in the very middle of the tube. So that is where the crew lives. And then all encapsulating that interior part of the tube of the interior, there are ballast tanks. So there are ballast tanks, I believe on regular boats, or at least some boats, I think. So I've seen like on Deadliest Catch where if their pumps stop working these tanks that they have on board for the crab can fill up with water and make the boat sink so i guess in that in an unintentional way the boats are changing their buoyancy by filling up their boat with water but ideally a boat will have a consistent buoyancy with a submarine when they're surfaced the ballast the ballast tanks are empty and that's how they're floating because the density of the boat is lighter than the water and so it floats. Now, when they decide that they want to go and be submerged, there are pumps to go fill up the ballast tanks. So they're partially full and they're filling up their, the submarine. It causes the submarine to dive. And when the um, tanks are full, then the submarine is submerged. Okay, so that's like the very basic way that it can change its depth. Its depth is just pumping water into and out of these tanks that are surrounding the interior um, area where the crew lives. Okay, so when they decide to then empty the ballast tanks because they want to go surface, so imagine their submarine is down in the ocean, you know, pretty far down in some cases, there is a lot of pressure on the outside of submarine so they can't just like open a valve and let the water pour out from the tanks because the pressure is coming in on them so no water will come out because there's so much pressure so they have to have these big pumps that will actually pump out the water from the ballast tanks against the pressure that the ocean is putting on them so they're pretty big and pretty hefty pumps and that will empty out the tanks and make the submarine float again So that is a very simple mechanism that um, can account for the change in depth. Now, the other thing I was a little bit confused by slash concerned by, because it seems like, again, these systems could be fragile if they're not maintained or if anything goes wrong, you know, you wouldn't have much time. One of those is oxygen. So oxygen is supplied on board through a bunch of pressurized tanks there also is sometimes an oxygen generator that can um, you know take the carbon dioxide and scrub it and make it into oxygen carbon dioxide is removed with the help of soda lime scrubbers so this is very common with like respirators or other kind of diving equipment the chemical reaction between the soda lime chemicals removes the co2 and makes the air fresh so there's like these air recirculating systems on board and so that is how they have enough oxygen to survive an extended period of time in a completely closed cabin um also there are dehumidifiers on board i didn't even think of this but once this article brought it up i was like yeah that makes a lot of sense because there are a lot of people in this submarine which is a very very close space they're all like you know just sweating and breathing and living and you you um put out water you like breathe out water you perspirate and so if you are in this extremely closed sealed off space you're gonna have extra moisture and perspiration everywhere so dehumidifiers are very important so that all the excess moisture doesn't condense on things and ruin the equipment and things like that this is also very important in space um i believe there was like some movie i think where they were in space and the moisture was like really starting to condense on things and like gonna ruin equipment and stuff so i if that was not just a movie um exaggeration i think this is also quite the concern in space, as well as on submarines. Okay, and then drinking water. I th- had it in my mind that desal- the desalination process was very time consuming, I guess, and complex and expensive, but it is necessary to have that on a submarine because it's just not going to be practical to have all your drinking water for, you know, six months at a time on. Your submarine. It just takes up so much space. It's so heavy, all that. So what happens for drinking water is there is a mechanism on board that takes in a certain amount of seawater. It heats it up into a vapor, and then that basically separates the pure unsalinated water from the salt, cools it down, and it's pumped into the submarine as drinking water. So this leads to a lot of um, kind of rules on board about the consumption of fresh water because there is kind of a limited amount. This process does take some time, although it says that a submarine can produce up to 10,000 to 40,000 gallons of drinking water a day. You know, that number varies a lot depending on the submarine that you're on, depending on the crew size, the size of the tanks and all that kind of thing. So it can definitely vary and you don't want to be the one that's taking like 30-minute showers when there are only, you know, a certain amount of gallons of fresh water. So, um, okay, so I read a little bit about military submarines specifically, like U.S. nuclear attack submarines, and there was one in particular that had a very interesting article kind of going more into the life of someone who is on board and deployed on a nuclear attack submarine so this was on the uss missouri and this journalist went on and kind of interviewed some people and saw the um environment and all of that so it was very interesting so basically crews spend about six months at sea on each deployment so they're not coming up very much the crew that he had talked to on their last deployment they had spent 163 of the last 181 days submerged so they're not coming up for you know supplies or uh or i guess they could come up for supplies but as soon as you signal or you know send a text or something it discloses your location and part of the missions of these submarines is to be secretive so You're not coming up that often or for that long of a time. So there were only about 18 days that this crew was ever, you know, surfaced on their deployment. So those 163 days mean absolutely no communication at all. You're spending all of those 163 days with like 95 to 130 other men on a submarine. So in very tight living quarters so this said that the submarine itself um, was 337 feet long and a third of that was taken up with the nuclear reactor and the propulsion systems again there were there's a varying amount of crew members per submarine like depending on which model of submarine you have or what the mission is or how big it is and all that. But this one in particular had 135 crew members, but they only had 94 beds, which means they had to do something called hot racking, which sounds literally terrible. Basically you have to sleep in shifts. So there might be multiple people assigned to one uh bed, but like one person would sleep from, you know, midnight to eight. The next person would sleep from eight to four or something like that. So that is definitely not ideal. And you're doing that for at least six months. Another thing that I didn't um, take into consideration is that you cannot distinguish days or nights on board a submarine. So you have no natural light coming in. You have no windows. Everything... I was gonna say like everything is pitch black but really you're just inside with artificial light all the time so you have no real sense of time it doesn't seem like there's again no distinguishing days or nights and so since there's also these shifts happening of people sleeping and you know some people have to work like third shift very late at night some people are working in the morning and then some people working on like second shift the mess hall which has apparently very good food. Apparently submarines are, you know, notorious for their very, very good food, but the mess hall will rotate serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner every few days so that one shift doesn't have to be eating. Basically the late shift would have to be eating the dinner meal during their breakfast time, because there's no distinguishing if you're really on the late shift or the early shift, because there's no days or nights So to them, it's their breakfast, but if they're eating like a heavy dinner all the time, that would be annoying. So the mess hall rotates breakfast, lunch, and dinner, not by like times of the day, but they just do it every couple days. So everyone gets kind of a variety. Otherwise, you don't know what's breakfast, what's lunch, what's dinner. It's all just, you know, time is, it would seem like time would be in a crazy warp down there because you just don't know (laughs) other than like sleeping and looking at a clock you wouldn't know that it's day or night by anything around you um okay so showering this is where the the water discussion comes in it is considered good shower etiquette to only take a three to five minute shower um like i guess a day whenever you take a shower it should only be for three to five minutes Because the big deal on board a submarine is the water runtime and the cycling of dirty water for clean water, and you always want, you don't want to be the one that uses all the clean water. The other huge rule, it seems from reading this article, is no one can slam a door. You are not allowed to slam a door at any time because on a submarine, again, because there's no like days, nights, people are shifting around and Um, sleeping at all different times. It is just assumed that someone is sleeping at all times. There are a group of people sleeping no matter what hour of the day you're on. And so if you slam a door, you're waking someone up. There's also only one washer and one dryer on board. So clean clothes are not a given. They're more of a luxury. If you can, you know, if you can get your clothes washed, it's kind of rare there's 135 crew members and one washer and one dryer because they just don't have the space. And then this article also says that the favorite pastime, you know, some people will play on their phones or, I mean, with no service, they can only play like mobile games that can be played offline. Or um, there were a couple other little games that they could play, but the favorite pastime, at least of the USS Missouri, was crimmage. A lot of people in their free time uh play cribbage which i love and i thought was really cool okay so that was kind of the day-to-day life of someone on a submarine or some of the rules but i wanted to look a little bit into like who thought of a submarine how did it come about because it seems like extremely extremely risky to even suggest the idea of taking this you know vehicle And at some point there was like the first submarine taking this vehicle, submerging it underwater and saying, Hey, let's get 135 people to get into this thing. And we'll just go around with a nuclear reactor on it and, you know, fire weapons at other, other countries. Um, so I wanted to know the evolution about how a submarine actually came about. So on thoughtco.com, there's a great article about the timeline or the evolution of submarine design so it gives you a nice timeline of what submarines looked like through the years so let's start with the very first submarine okay so the very first submarine was created in 1578 it was drafted by a man named william bourne it never actually got built it was only ever drawn but basically his design was based on you know, ballast tanks, which are on present day submarines. So very smart. Um, so his design was based on these tanks, which could be filled to submerge and evacuated to surface. So this is definitely the framework and groundwork of all of today's modern submarines. So that guy was way ahead of his time. Okay. Then in 1620, a man named Cornelius Drebel, who was Dutch, he built an ord submersible he called it so it had like oars like a boat but you could submerge it in the water so his submarine design was the first to address the problem of air replenishment while being submerged it doesn't go into a lot of detail about how it you know addressed that problem but his did address it at least okay and then in 1776 so right as the revolutionary war is starting this man named david bushnell builds a one-man human-powered turtle submarine he called it the colonial army attempted to sink the british warship named the hms eagle with the turtle submarine so it wasn't actually successful but this was like the first attempt this was the first submarine to dive surface and be used in naval combat its intended purpose was to break the british naval blockade of new york harbor during the american revolution with slight positive buoyancy it floated with approximately six inches of exposed surface the turtle was powered by a hand-driven propeller which is impressive this that must have been very hard to actually power um the operator would submerge under the target and using a screw pre- to, pre- oh my gosh The operator would submerge under the target and using a screw projecting from the top of the turtle he would attach a clock detonated explosive charge so this was very manual nothing was like getting shot out of it um it was kind of just being attached Uh, but again it didn't actually work but it was a huge step in the advancements of submarines okay in 1798 a man named robert fulton built the nautilus submarine it incorporated two forms of power for uh, propulsion one was a sail while it was on the surface and then one was a hand cranked screw while it was submerged now the sail yeah the sail's not that practical if you're trying to stay inconspicuous um, but it did help to move faster you know when it was actually like when you didn't need to be hidden so it was a development but that is definitely not on submarines uh, today okay then we have in 1895 so it's quite a long time that submarines were kind of at a standstill design wise but in yes in 1895 John P. Holland introduced a submarine called the Holland 7 and later the Holland 8 in 1900. The Holland 8 with its petroleum engine for surface propulsion and electric engine for submerged operations served as the blueprint adopted by all the world's navies for submarine design up until 1914. So this was like a big step because of the much more advanced propulsion. As we've learned in all of these you know state histories and stuff around like the mid 1800s late 1800s a lot of these new technologies were taking hold and coming into, you know, into widespread practice, and so they just took a lot of that technology and ended up putting it on a submarine for propulsion, which was very, very smart. In 1904, it says the French submarine Aguette is the first submarine built with a diesel engine for surface propulsion and electric engine for submerged operations diesel fuel is less volatile than petroleum and is the preferred fuel for current and future conventionally powered submarine designs so big innovation in diesel fuel okay we skip forward to 1943 the german u-boat u-264 is equipped with a snorkel mast. This mast, which provides air to the diesel engine, allows the submarine to operate the engine at a shallow depth and recharge the batteries. 1944, the German U 791 uses hydrogen peroxide as an alternative fuel source. I had no idea hydrogen peroxide could be used as a fuel source, but it can be on submarines as it turns out. 1954, the U.S. launches the USS Nautilus, which is the world's first nuclear-powered submarine. Nuclear power enables submarines to become true submersibles, able to operate underwater for an indefinite period of time. So this is what really unlocked the like six-month deployments, you know, from the naval from the Navy. What is really fueling that is the nuclear-powered submarine. The development of the nuclear The development of the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Plant was the work of a team Navy. Wait. The development of the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Plant was the work of a team Navy, government, and contractor engineers led by Captain Hyman G. Rickover. Okay, 1958, the U.S. introduces the U.S. Albacore with a teardrop hull design to reduce underwater resistance and allow greater submerged speed and maneuverability the first submarine class to use this new hull design is the USS skipjack so they're definitely becoming more streamlined and less you know prone to drag 1959 is the last timeline item on here the USS George Washington is the world's first nuclear-powered ballistic missile firing submarine so that is like. From my understanding, what we still kind of use today is that design with the more sleek hull, and then we also have nuclear-powered, and we can launch weapons from submarines. So that's really the development, in short, of all of the designs of uh, the submarine over the years. I can't even imagine wanting to go on on a submarine. Again, there's a whole nuclear reactor on there to propel the whole ship forward there's like an oxygen thing a co2 thing a humidifier all of these can break if any one of them breaks you either have to race back up to the surface or you're just done you know there's like it's too much so not to end this on a sad note but i'm going to a little bit um i wanted to look up incidents of submarine disasters basically because i just kind of was wondering like if something goes wrong can you really like come up to the surface can you say you know does anyone survive or is it really like a plane crash where it's just people aren't surviving like everyone on board is dying or is there any kind of hope and how often do things go wrong my research into this specific thing with the disasters didn't really say how many times things go wrong Um, but based on these, it doesn't seem like it's that often because a lot of them are, are a while ago or very spread out that these are the worst disasters. So I don't think like every day a submarine is sinking or anything. I think they're pretty safe, but sometimes things definitely do go wrong. So number five on the worst disasters in submarine of, on a submarine history is the Was on the NERPA, it's called, and that was in Russia. It says in 2008, the NERPA was going through its final sea trials before getting commissioned and joining the Russian Navy. One day, a mixed crew of civilians and sailors were on board the vessel. They were putting the submarine through a series of tests. All of a sudden, the fire extinguishing system was activated. And so, what happens in an activation of the fire system is that the first two bow compartments. So there's like these different compartments on the submarine. And if something goes wrong, you can kind of seal them off to try to contain the whatever's going on incorrectly in that compartment. It sealed off the first two bow compartments and filled them with a fire suppressing chemical. And it ended up killing all of the people who were trapped in those first two compartments. So not everyone on board, I believe died but 20 people were killed and 41 people were injured so that is a an interesting one because it was a disaster response mechanism like it was a um you know if a fire goes starts on a submarine you definitely want a fire extinguisher or else you're definitely all going to die but someone had accidentally activated the fire extinguishing system and so that's why Um, there were casualties on board so that is definitely unfortunate um but interesting because i always thought of like if a submarine went wrong it would be like some part exploded or water leaked in or the whole thing like snapped in two or something but you never really think about it as sort of a planned response system is what ends up um, being a disaster so The next one is the ARA San Juan. This was in Argentina and in 2017, it went missing during a trip from one port to another. It was a routine trip. Um, It had 44 people on board and it just didn't reach its destination. People were trying to establish communications with it and trying to find out where it went and no one could find it. There was an international task force that was brought in. no one was able to find it but the british who were actually rivals of the argentinians because of the falklands war of 1982 but even they sent a specialized unit to help try to find the submarine but um it took a year for the search and recovery forces to find the submarine and they found it at the bottom of the ocean they still don't actually know what happened and why it sank i don't think they've ever found that out so that's a little bit nerve-wracking okay the third one is the kri nangala this was an indonesian submarine and it went missing during a training exercise this says last week but this is i'm assuming an old article let me see when what year so 2021 so that one went missing in 2021 during a training exercise again it failed to make contact there was a deep sea dive uh, 60 miles off the coast of bali and after that no one had heard from it it says according to the indonesian navy the submarine was scheduled to live fire its torpedoes during a training event first sonar and then deep sea remotely piloted vehicles showed that the indonesian submarine suffered catastrophic damage when firing a torpedo, it broke up, like the whole submarine broke up, it's in three parts and all 53 men uh, sunk and died in the bottom of the ocean. So it's a risky, definitely a risky business being on a submarine. Okay, the Chang 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 Chang, so C-H-A-N-G, C-H-E-N-G, 361, That was a Chinese submarine. In 2003, a fishing trawler found the Ming-class submarine sailing peacefully just above the waves close to North Korea. The Chinese fishermen tried to make contact with the submarine but failed. It continued to float aimlessly until other warships arrived and discovered that all of its 70 crew members were dead. The Chinese Navy was unaware that it had gone missing and that there was an emergency because it was participating in an exercise that simulated realistic battlefield conditions in which subs might not surface and make comms for days, even weeks, depending on their class, for fear of being compromised. An investigation revealed that the engine had failed to shut when the submarine submerged and used up all the oxygen. That. Okay, that seems like one of the things that I would have guessed would happen on a submarine is that the oxygen would just get used up and the engine would not work anymore. So um, that one's kind of sad because they did not realize for so long that they were actually dead and no one thought to check because they just thought that they were, you know, doing the simulation well and not making contact. Okay, the number one worst submarine disaster in the last 21 years of this century um this says undeniably the worst one is this russian submarine called the kursk now i feel like i maybe would have i guess not i was only five so this happened in 2000 and the russian nuclear-powered guided missile submarine went missing during an exercise in the Barents sea with a crew of 118, the massive Kursk was one of the most powerful submarines in the Russian fleet. Okay, so an investigation in the recovered submarine revealed that one of its torpedoes exploded while it was getting ready for launch by the crew. It was using this Type 65 76A torpedo designed to sink American aircraft, uh, designed to sink American aircraft carriers, which runs on hydrogen peroxide fuel. So we were we just talked about in the design um that hydrogen peroxide was used as a fuel at some point you know in the development of the submarine well hydrogen peroxide is actually a very highly volatile material this says and so the explosion triggered a second even larger detonation of nearby torpedoes this says contemporary reports state that the second explosion which sunk the submarine was so large that seismographic stations in Europe and Alaska picked it up. So this, I mean, that is bad because there's 118 people on board and there's this big explosion and all this stuff, but it gets a little bit worse. It says, dramatically, 23 of its crew members managed to survive both blasts and had barricaded themselves at the back of the sunken vessel. Despite frantic efforts to save them, newly elected russian president vladimir putin refused international help including from the u.s navy remember this submarine is designed specifically to sink american aircraft carriers and then once they're sunk the u.s navy even offered to go help he refused help international help for five days but then eventually relented to you know the pressure the domestic pressure it says and but by then the crewmen had all died So, um, I would hate to be one of those 23 people that survived both blasts and then just waited there for five days and died. That would be terrible, but that just shows like, I mean, those are the five worst ones for sure, but you don't really hear a lot about submarine accidents. So it just seems like, um, they're, I mean, I just read five really bad accidents, so I wouldn't argue that they're. Maybe the safest, or that wouldn't make a lot of sense, but you really don't hear that much about submarine disasters, and so I feel like it's kind of like a plane, you know you hear sometimes about these plane disasters, but it's really not that frequent and so while submarines freak me out a little bit, a little bit like being enclosed, submerged, having real no real escape. I think they've gotten to the point where it's pretty reliable and pretty safe to actually be on a submarine. So that's good news, but I would never make the choice voluntarily to go on a submarine. That is definitely for sure. So, um, well, that is all I have about the history and how submarines work and all of that. I hope you learned a lot. I definitely learned a ton and submarines just really intrigue me and people who definitely Volunteer to go on submarines because that uss missouri crew was all like by volunteer i mean they were in the the military so that was voluntary and then they volunteered to get on the submarine for six months at a time so i could i could never and it takes a very special type of person to actually want to do that it seems but i hope you all learned a lot and i will see you on Thursday for our next episode of A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And if you haven't yet, uh, please rate and review the podcast, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to, and uh, tell your friends about the pod because we'd love to expand our uh, listenership. So um, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you on Thursday. Bye, everyone.